What's the best thing that ever happened to you? If I were to ask you and you were to tell me about the very best thing in your life, there are probably some standard things that would come to most of our minds. It might be the day that you graduated school with a degree in hand. Yeah, baby, took me five years, 60 grand in debt, but I finally got my piece of paper, right? For many of you, that was like the best day, or at least it's your best day so far. Perhaps it was the day you got married. You stood at the altar with your beloved and you said, I do, and that was kind of the best, the defining moment. I'm not saying it's all downhill from there, but it's like, it's tough to top that day. Are you with me? That's a really good one. Could be the birth of your child. You can pick which child. That's totally up to you. But that's always a day that would come to mind when we're thinking about the best ones ever. It might be the day that your favorite sports team was crowned world champions. Oh man. Might be the day that you finally decided to get sober. For some of you, that might be it. Those actually, those two things might be linked. You with me? It's like, okay, they've won. Time to get myself right here. Uh, it could be that somebody in the room has won the lottery and you're like, bro, that was a good day. I'm not even going to lie. If that's you, I want you to remember that every donation to Connect Church is tax deductible. Okay. When we start thinking about our best days ever, the best things that ever happened to us, there are a lot of things that come to mind. And in today's passage, we're actually going to be sharing a story in which the disciples of Jesus thought that they were having the best day ever. I mean, they were so hyped, so stoked over the things that they were seeing and experiencing. But in the middle of their joy and celebration, Jesus comes in and he doesn't like say, quit, knock it off, stop celebrating. But he actually reminds them that as good as everything they're experiencing that day was, it's nothing compared to the greatest joy of all, that they had an even deeper and better reason to celebrate than they even knew in the moment. And I think you guys are going to find these verses really helpful too, because Jesus is going to tell them, and, and of course, by extension, all of us, he's going to tell us about a source of joy that is with us both on our best days, but also our worst days. I'm telling you, on my tough days, I want to be reminded that I have a reason to smile. I need to be reminded that I have a reason to sing. I need the Holy Spirit to just say, hey, Dan, it's going to be okay. And Jesus is going to give us that reminder and reason in Luke chapter number 10. Now, we're going to read kind of a lengthy section from Luke 10 this morning, okay? We're going to go through several verses in this passage because I think you need to understand the backstory to, to track with what Jesus is about to say in a moment towards the end of this passage. And uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapters 9 and 10 represent kind of a shift or a turning point in Jesus' ministry. So in Luke chapter number 1 through chapter number 8, we have a lot of the works of Jesus. So Luke, one of the earliest followers of Christ, he emphasizes in the early part of this book, all the stuff that Jesus did, people he healed, miracles he worked. It was a focus. There was an emphasis on the works of Jesus in the first part of the book of Luke. Then in chapter number nine, we have this moment called the transfiguration. And I don't have time to get into what all that means, but you can go read it yourself if you want to. It's basically the revelation of Jesus as the son of God. The disciples see him not just in his earthly form, but they see him as the second member of the Godhead. It's 
this incredible experience. And from that point on, Luke actually begins to shift from talking about the works of Jesus more towards the words of Jesus. So the last half of the Gospel of Luke, it's like constant sermon and discourse and preaching and teaching from Jesus. And so this passage that we're beginning to read in marks this shift. Jesus is going to start to set his mind towards Jerusalem and the cross and everything that's going to happen during Passion Week. So I'm going to start reading here in Luke chapter number 10, verse 1. And like I said, we're just going to work through this, okay? So the passages will be here on the screen. The Bible says, the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places that he planned to visit. Now, if you're tracking and paying close attention there, you might get hung up a little bit on the fact that it says he chose 72 other disciples. Do you see that? These are not the 12 apostles that we know about. Jesus actually had a whole crowd of men and women who followed him. And in this particular instance, he chooses 72 of them and he sends them out to prepare the towns and villages that he's going to uh, be visiting. These were his instructions, verse 2 tells us. And by the way, these instructions that he gives to the group of 72 are actually the same instructions that he gives to the 12 one chapter earlier. And so it's kind of this, uh, the, the idea here is basically that like Jesus gave a commission, a command, he gave a, 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 a purpose to his original 12, but now he's extending that to the other disciples, the people that are in the crowd. And we're supposed to understand from that that like, we have the same calling and commission today. It wasn't just for these 12 guys, but it's literally for all of us, the stuff that Jesus is about to say. I, I'm just telling you, okay, we're gonna read this this morning and you're gonna be like, well, that's interesting, but that ain't for me though, right? Yes, it is. So he grabs this group of 72. He sends them out into the towns and places he plans to visit. These were the instructions he gave them. He says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. You guys, there's never been a problem with the harvest. The harvest is this metaphor that Jesus uses for people who don't yet know God, but if, if Christians were to come and speak to them in the right way, they were to show and share the love of God, they would actually make a decision to give their lives to God, to become followers of Jesus. And sometimes we get in this mindset, they were like, oh man, this world, they just hate God and they hate everything about God, including us. And you know, nobody's ever gonna make a decision. Maybe you've got friends and family members and you've been praying for them because you want them to know Jesus the way that you do. And maybe in your heart or in your mind over time, you're just like, I don't know, they're never going to be harvested. They're never going to change. They're never going to respond to what I've been sharing with them. But Jesus says, the harvest is ready. The harvest is there. You guys, there are more people in Calgary today that would be willing to give their lives to Jesus than we would ever believe. The question isn't the, uh, the, the problem or the issue isn't the number of people that are ready. It's the number of people that are out there sharing the truth, showing the love of Jesus. I mean, I'm just taking Jesus at his word here. The harvest is great. It's the laborers who are the problem. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the field. He says in verse three, now go. Okay, 72, you're gonna go. You're gonna leave me. My other 12 guys and I, we're gonna hang out here for a little bit. You're gonna go on to these towns that I'm sending you into. He says, remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Now, if I were a part of the 72, this is the part where I would have been like, mm, don't like that. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. I mean, I don't want to be a wolf or anything. Don't get me wrong. Like, I know that, you know, in this metaphor, the wolves are the bad guys. So I'm not saying like, Jesus, I'd rather be a wolf. But nobody wants to be a sheep, right? Sheep are dumb. 
Sheep are kind of dirty. They're just like barnyard animals. Like, who wants to be compared to a sheep? I grew up in, in Texas, okay? This is what a lot of people used to say. The world is full of sheep. I'm not a sheep. I'm a sheep dog. <laughs> there are a lot of people that think that way. My job is to guard and protect the flock. My job is to look out. I, I'm aware of things that other people are not aware of. Y'all can be sheep, not me. No. Jesus says his followers are supposed to live as sheep in the world. Sheep have no natural protection. They're dumb. They're kind of dirty. <laughs> I'm not saying you're dirty, but my point here is like Jesus is using a comparison. And the reason he uses this comparison is because he is about to send the disciples out and they are going to have to rely on him in total faith. In the same way that a sheep wandering out by itself has no natural protection, these disciples are gonna be sent out into a difficult world. And Jesus says, I want you to remember, you're going out as lambs among wolves. He says in verse four, don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. Like, don't pack a big bag, just go. It's time to go. Now, some people get hung up on this. They get confused because there's another place in Jesus' ministry where he tells his disciples, when I send you out, I want you to pack a bag. I want you to bring extra clothes uh, if you don't have a sword, go sell some stuff and buy yourself a sword. And it's like, wait, which does Jesus want us to do? Because here he says, don't pack a bag and don't bring any extras. And then later he's going to say, you need to bring a whole lot of extras. And what you've got to understand, and boy, we talked about this in our How to Read the Bible series, is that so much of the confusion that we experience in the Bible is very easy to understand and explain when we recognize that God gives different commands to people at different times. So like, the disciples here are about to go on a short-term mission trip, you guys. That's what they're doing. This is going to be a short-term trip. They're going to go out for a couple of weeks, and they're going to come back. They don't need a whole lot of gear to go out there. But later, when he sends them out, and they're going to go to the furthest ends of the known world, they're going to need to be prepared. And so he gives them an instruction that's fit for the moment, and then he reserves the right to give them a better instruction later. I went to Toronto a few weeks ago. I was only there for two or three days, something like that. So I brought a backpack and nothing else. Then Amber and I went to, yeah, I know, crazy, right? Then, then Amber and I went to Texas, and we were there for two weeks, and I not only brought a backpack, but I brought a giant suitcase. Then I brought an empty suitcase so that Amber could bring back all the stuff that she was going to get while we were in Texas, okay? So listen, Jesus tells these disciples, go light, travel light right now. I want you to just go and preach and teach and rely on me, Okay. He says, don't stop to greet anyone on the road. That doesn't mean be rude. He's just saying, be focused. Get where I'm telling you to go. Whenever you enter someone's house, first say, shalom. May God's peace be on this house. And if those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. And if they are not, the blessing will return to you. He goes on to say, don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. His, his teaching, his commandment here is essentially like, hey guys, you might get somewhere and it may not be the best accommodations around. And you might notice that there's another house or another hotel or something that you could go stay at and it might be a little more comfortable and all that. No, don't do that. Go somewhere, plant yourself, stay. Get to know people, develop a relationship. It's okay if they're different than you. It's okay if they don't have all the, the creature comforts that you might want. Go somewhere, get yourself planted, and then start to develop a relationship with people. He goes on to say, don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. Hey, guys, there is nothing wrong with accepting help when you need it. There's nothing wrong. Jesus could have told them, 
go get a bag, pack it full of food. Bring all the extra clothes you need. You better bring your pillow. Remember we talked about how much I love my pillow a few weeks ago. Um, Bring all that stuff with you, but he didn't. He said, I want you to go in faith and I want you to trust that I'm gonna provide people to help you along the way. There's nothing wrong with accepting help when you need it. He says, if you enter into a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Now, this is the point when my wife would have tapped out. (laughs) She would have been like, oh, hey, you know, she's got a very narrow menu that she eats from. And Jesus says, hey, disciples, when you go into one of these towns, I want you to eat something. I went to a Filipino hangout one night and they said, oh, pastor, have you ever heard of balut? And I said, what? No, what is that? If you don't know, it's a fertilized duck egg. It's got feathers in a beak, y'all. And you eat it. And it was delicious. I had a good time with it, honestly. It was not too shabby. Jesus said, Amber's like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Jesus says, when you go to a town, okay, when you go to a town, I want you to eat whatever they set before you. Now, God, this is so bizarre. I'm telling you guys, the scripture is so rich. Most, of, most people would just read this and they would just gloss right over that. They would never stop to ask like, why did Jesus need to tell the disciples to eat whatever somebody serves them. That's a strange command. Did it really need to be said? Wasn't it obvious? But what you have to recognize is that in this time in history, the Jews had all of these rules about foods that were clean and unclean and which foods might be on this side of the line or that side of the line. And essentially what Jesus is saying here is, guys, don't get hung up on that. Don't get hung up on personal preferences. Don't get hung up arguing about things that in the end don't matter. I am sending you out so that you can share the love of God with these people. So don't get sidetracked by all of these smaller issues. He says, if they accept you, then heal their sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near to you now. This is their mission, their commission. This is what they're supposed to be doing. This is important because in a moment, we're gonna find out they do that, but they get hyped about something else. Okay, but if a town refuses to welcome you, then go out into its streets and say, we wipe the, even the dust of your town off our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. You want nothing to do with us? Fine, you do you, okay? But know this, Jesus says, your last words to them is the kingdom of God is near. Do you recognize that's the exact same message that they were giving to the people who welcomed them? So the message doesn't really change. There's always an open invitation. God is always reaching out to people, even the people who are responsive and the people who are like, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. The message is the same. The kingdom of God is near. God loves you. He has a plan for you. And his plan involves your salvation and redemption through Christ. Now, this does seem kind of harsh though, that Jesus would say like, all right, tell them you're wiping the dust off your feet shaking it off and walking away from them, leaving to their own devices. The reason why we find is in verse number 16. Jesus says to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And then he says this line, which is bonkers if you think about it. Anyone who rejects me, Jesus says, is rejecting God who sent me. Do you realize Jesus said some stuff that if he is not the Messiah, if he is not the son of God, he is a lunatic. He has the biggest ego of anybody who ever lived. Are you with me? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you reject me, you are rejecting God. Nobody will come to the father except through me. So either Jesus was the most arrogant dude that ever lived. I mean, he thought so much of himself and if he was wrong about it, then he's a nut job and we shouldn't even listen to anything he said or he was telling us the truth. The things that he said 
we need to take very seriously. And he says the reason that we're gonna, we're gonna wipe the dust off our feet and we're gonna move on is because they're not just rejecting the messenger, but they're rejecting the one who sent the message. They're rejecting God. Okay, now verse 17 through 21, this is where I wanted to get to, okay? When the 72 disciples returned, the Bible says they were full of joy. They were hyped. They were celebrating. They were just like buzzing. Jesus, you are not gonna believe the stuff that happened while we were out ministering in these towns. Like, seriously, we walked in and there were people that were sick and we prayed for them and they got well. Like I knew the 12 could do that, but I wasn't expecting that I was gonna be able to do that. Jesus, there were families that were separated and broken and the situation seemed completely hopeless. And then we started talking to them about the hope that they had through you and the families reconciled and things were turned around. I mean, I know it's only been two or three weeks, but they're headed in a whole new direction. So the disciples are just joyful, man. They are celebrating. In fact, they go on to say here, They say, as they joyfully report to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Listen, if if I exercised a demon from somebody, I would would feel pretty good. You know, I would walk around like this, chest puffed out. I'm like, what's up? I mean, they they were in the moment. They were hyped. They were so happy about what had happened, right? But what I want you to recognize here in the moment is that Jesus didn't send them out with the commission to cast out demons and to work miracles. I mean, it's good, and that needed to happen, but that actually wasn't their job. The job was to go and love people and tell them about Jesus. So, so what you have to understand, because Jesus is going to, it's, it's hard to say he's going to rebuke them, but you know he's going to confront them. He's going to challenge them a little bit here. And the reason is because very subtly, their mindset has shifted from what Jesus has done in them to what they are now doing in the world. It's about them, their abilities and accomplishments and achievements and glory. And Jesus is going to say, wait, 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 guys, I know you're hyped about this, but let's not forget what's really important. So these disciples say, even the demons obey us when we use your name. By the way, the end of today's service, we're gonna sing a brand new song and it's gonna be talking about authority and it's gonna be talking about the power of Jesus' name. You never, well, you might've heard the song on the radio. We've never sung it before. And it is tied directly back to passages just like this. Okay. Jesus says in verse 18, yeah, obviously. He says, guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's like, I, I, yeah, I get that you're, you're stoked about this, but you saw a couple infantrymen fall here. Like, I saw the commander-in-chief lose the war. And so he's like, I get it. It's pretty cool. And there's even greater things to come than what you're experiencing right now. But watch this. He goes on to say, look, guys, I've given you authority. We sing songs in which we say Jesus has given us the authority. In Jesus' name, you have authority. You have authority in the world that you can't even comprehend. We're like these 72 and we're like, well, the authority and the ability and the the opportunities, even the miracles, that's for them. It's not for normal people like me. The whole point here is that it's for everybody 
who operates in Jesus' name. He says, I give you authority and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Like you have to understand in the ancient world, snakes and scorpions were terrifying because there was no anti-venom. You realize that. If you got bit by a snake, the only thing there was to do was pray. There was no treatment, no medication. You got stung by a scorpion, it's the same thing. And so Jesus is saying, even things against which you believe there's no hope, I've given you authority over them. You can walk among them. Your lambs among wolves. Your lambs walking in a bed of snakes and they ain't even gonna hurt you. He says this in verse 20, and this is where we get to the but. I told you, disciples, man, they're, they're so having best day ever. Jesus says, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Jesus sends the disciples out. He gives them power and authority, and they're successful. And their success actually becomes seductive. They start to think, ooh, I like this now. I I was a nobody fisherman before, and now all of a sudden I'm casting out demons? Let's go. I like this, right? And Jesus says, I want you guys to experience that sort of authority and power. I want you to see transformation happen all around you. But don't ever let your focus, your mindset be shifted from what you might do in Jesus' name to what Jesus has done for you in the very first place. Don't get excited because demons are cast out. Don't get excited over these things. Instead, never lose sight of the joy that your name is registered in heaven. It's literally what Jesus is saying here is that you are a citizen of heaven. You have been given access. You have been given a position. You belong to the kingdom of God now. Man, Amber and I have been trying to belong to Canada for a long time. Y'all apparently don't want us. (sighs) Anyway, We're looking forward to the day that our names are registered in Canada. We belong. We're allowed to stay. Jesus says, the greatest thing that has ever or will ever happen to you is not casting out demons or seeing miracles. It's not experiencing the blessings and favor of God here on earth. But it is knowing that your sins have been forgiven according to his mercy and grace And that no matter what happens in life, your names are registered in heaven. We might put it like this. The best thing that ever happened to me was discovering what Jesus did for me. Like my wedding day was amazing, you guys. I loved it. It was really fantastic. And and I got to graduate and get a degree. I was the first person in my family to do that. It's pretty cool. And then like, you know, God called me to move to another country. And and we actually started a church, like that first service, September 11, 2016. Man, that's a big day for me. Like I really get excited about that day. There are going to be more wonderful days that happen in my life. But can I tell you something? None of them compare to the day that I discovered that God loved me. And that because of his mercy and grace, he was willing to save me from my sin and stupidity and give me a relationship with him. That is the thing that I get hyped about. That's the thing that I celebrate. Somebody wants to know about my best day ever. I'm going to tell them about the day I met Jesus because he's the one who changed everything for me. If somebody wants to know who I am, first thing I'm going to tell them is I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian because he is everything to me. This is what Jesus is reminding the disciples of. This is what he's reminding us of as well. 
the best thing that ever happened to me was discovering what Jesus did for me. You guys know most of, of my story. Some of you are new, and so you might not. I did not grow up in church, you guys. I didn't grow up believing in God. My family was as far from God as you could ever imagine. I come from meth heads and bikers and outlaws and alcoholics. And, you know, we lived in a trailer park in Texas, okay? That's just what I come from. And I grew up believing that that was what was in store for me. That was it. That was just my lot in life. It's not fair, but it is what it is. And I really didn't think there was much hope. And I found myself walking out, fulfilling the exact same patterns that I had seen displayed by my family growing up. And then when I was a teenager, I went to church for the very first time. And when I did, I heard that God was real. He hadn't forgotten me and left me in this mess of a life, but that through Jesus, I had been forgiven of all of my sins that he had a purpose and a calling. I wasn't an accident, and I wasn't supposed to spend my days in jail like some of the people I knew, but that God actually had a good plan for me. It involved living for Jesus instead of settling for all the things that I thought I had to settle for. Guys, it transformed my life. I've never gotten over it. It changed me so much that I just decided I'm going to spend every day or at least every Sunday morning talking about it. I just can't stop because it's that big of a stinking deal. Listen, I love telling stories of how God is working among our congregation. I love talking, man, you guys, I preached a message and 11 people got saved. It's so good, right? Okay, that happened like once. Anyway, um, I like, man, our worship team is crushing it. They're so good. You should come here. I love talking. We got a building. I love talking about these miraculous things that God does but I never want to lose the first thing, the most important thing, the fact that I was a sinner and I was separated from God because of my sin. And rather than leaving me to my own destruction, God chased me down in the person of Jesus. He found me when I was wandering like a sheep far from the pastor I was supposed to be in. And he welcomed me home. As a good father would do to any wayward child. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. It's the best thing that ever happened to these disciples. And honestly, it should be the best thing that ever happened to you. The offer from God is not to just bless you, give you everything you want in life and make life easy and wonderful. That's not it. The offer isn't an offer of power. You can walk through life and nothing will ever hurt you. That's apparently not exactly what Jesus meant. But what he does promise, what he does guarantee to every single one of us is that he will save us. He will give us a relationship with him. He will instill in us a new sense of identity and purpose, and then he'll turn us loose to change the world. That offer is for all of us. And Jesus says, guys, I don't ever want you to forget the, the greatest blessing of all, the miracle that I just can't get over is that my name is registered in heaven? In fact, I almost didn't read verse 21, but then it occurred to me just how important verse 21 is to this passage. Jesus says, don't get excited that the demons obey you. Get excited that your name is registered in heaven. And at that same time, 
in the moment. Because of what he had just said, the Bible says Jesus himself was filled with joy, the Holy Spirit. And he said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. This idea that we have been saved according to God's love and mercy, it is so good that it gives Jesus joy. He gets excited. He's like, guys, you don't even understand what God has done for you. One day you're gonna stand face to face with God and you're gonna be like, I wish I would have realized back then just how good you are and just how much grace it is that you have for me. Jesus gets great joy over our salvation, over the fact that we have been given new life through his sacrifice. It's wild to me that so many of us look at our salvation with indifference. Yeah, it's cool. I got Jesus. I'm good. Cool. No, this is the best news. It's the best thing that ever happened. And I'll just say lovingly, if it's not the best thing that's happened to you, then I don't think you really understand what Jesus has done for you. I don't think you realize just how depraved and flawed and sinful we all are and just how loving God is anyway. So here's what I want to do. I want to end this morning just by asking a couple of quick questions. Um, in, in, in the first place, I, we'll put three of them here on the screen. You don't have to answer these out loud. I just want you to answer them kind of between you and God. What's the core of my identity as a person? What, when I think about me, what's, what's the most important thing about me? What is it? You could get, put any number of answers there. But for a follower of Jesus, before we ever think about our gender identity... Before we ever think about our marital status, before we ever think about our job title, before we ever think about our race or our country of origin, I'm a Christian. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's the most important thing about me. You want to know Dan? You can't know Dan without knowing Jesus and what he did for Dan. So when I think about me, I think about me in terms of Jesus. I used to think, guys, I was like the sun and the world revolved around me. Hello. Now I realize I'm like a moon, okay? I'm just barely there hanging on and I'm revolving around Jesus. He's the center. He's the one that matters. He's the one that is at the core of who I am. What's the source or who is the core? What is the core of my identity? Second question is, what's the foundation of my relationship with God? What's the foundation of my relationship with God? You might say, well, I go to church. That's kind of my relationship with God. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're a follower of God. Like my old youth pastor used to say, like sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car and sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian. Okay, so the foundation of my relationship with God is not that I go to church. It's not the ministry that I do. Oh, Man, I've heard a couple of stories recently of people who are like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just struggling, finding my place and my ministry, and I don't know, I don't really feel like I'm doing very much for God right now, and so I feel distant and far from him. Your your relationship with God is not based on what you do for him. Don't be excited that the demons respond to your name, or respond to the name of Jesus. They don't respond to your name at all. Um, (laughs) Hey, get excited, get hyped, get get really, really excited. focused on the fact that your name is written in heaven. What's the foundation of my relationship with God? Blessings 
I need, I need Jesus to bless me. That's why I come to church. That's why I became a Christian because I'm expecting God to protect me and make life easy. He never promises that. In fact, he says in this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. So the foundation of my relationship with God is my salvation. The fact that I was a sinner and because of his love towards me, he saved me. And last question, what's the source of joy in my life? Where do I get my joy from? It can't be tied to circumstances. Do you understand the reason why Jesus was telling the disciples, don't get so worked up over demons being cast out is because there were going to be times in the future in which demons were not cast out. There were going to be days that they failed. There were going to be days in which life circumstances went real bad. In fact, all the men, except for John, who heard what Jesus said here, they were eventually murdered for their faith. So they were not always going to have awesome and wonderful days. They were going to have some really bad days. And so what Jesus is saying is reorient yourself so that your joy comes from something that is not dependent on your circumstances. You can smile. You can have joy. You can have happiness and delight in the Lord, whether you're having a great day or a bad day. Why? Because no matter what happens in life, nothing will change the fact that my name is registered in heaven. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I don't care if the world is at war. I don't care if there's a famine in the land. It doesn't matter if there's a pandemic. It doesn't matter if I screw up in sin, when I screw up in sin. Nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ. So that becomes the source of my joy each and every day. Revelation chapter number 12, verse 11. Scripture's given us a picture of heaven. And in heaven are all the saints, the redeemed, like the 12 and the 72 and the us. We're all there. And in this picture of heaven, we're told that these saints, they received their victory, they won. They are united with God. Why? Because of the ministry that they did. Because they went to church four times a week, or a month anyway. Because they gave in the offering. Because they were a good person. Never cheated on their wife. They filed their taxes. Honestly, who does that? No. Doesn't say any of those things. Says they received their victory because of the blood of the Lamb, the death of Jesus to pay for our sins and to reconcile us to the Father and the word of their testimony. That last part is really important because it can become really easy for you to show up to church on Sunday and sit here and to think, okay, well, I'm hearing about Jesus and God loves me through him and I'm forgiven and all those different things. But it's the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony that gives them the victory. Some of you guys, Jesus has shed his blood for you, but your testimony is not that grace has rewritten your story. Your testimony is not that you have moved from death to life. You're still dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. God has given you the freedom. He's given you the ability to be set free, redeemed and transformed, given new spiritual life in Christ. But until you accept the free gift, it doesn't have any effect in your life. They're in heaven because of what Jesus did and the fact that they were willing to accept it and embrace it in their heart. As we close, I just want to give somebody the opportunity to embrace Jesus and this good gift. To accept from him forgiveness and new life, not because you deserve it or you're a good person or you came to church today, any of that, but because God loves you. He loves you as his child 
and he wants to forgive you and he wants to transform you to go out and to change the world the way that these disciples did, the way that Christians have for centuries. But it all comes down to acknowledging that you need to be saved and that you believe Jesus is the one who can save you. So I'll ask for every head bowed, every eye closed, and I'll give you a simple prayer to to repeat after me. You can say it quietly in your own heart. Say, dear Jesus, today I need forgiveness. I accept you into my life, and my testimony now is that you are my Lord and my Savior. Today, I choose you because you've already chosen me. I thank you, Christ, in your name. Amen. Guys, if you prayed that prayer today, this will be your best day ever. You're like, I don't know, man. It seems kind of low-key. Like, we're all sitting here, and I'm going to go eat at the food court afterwards and stuff like that. doesn't matter. My best day ever was just like that. Her best day ever was just like this. Their best day ever was just like this. Because the best day isn't tied to circumstances. The best day is tied to salvation.